Quantum Conversations, your portal to the inner realms. Access infinite possibilities, infinite mastery, and infinite love. Mind-expanding, heart-opening conversations with some of the greatest spiritual teachers, luminaries, and healers of today's world. Usher in new earth by living in your sacred heart. Quantum Conversations is brought to you by AcousticHealth.com, home of music from the universe, online healing retreats, and this program. Claim your free registration to daily shows at AcousticHealth.com. AcousticHealth.com, your portal to the inner realms. Our program starts shortly. Welcome to another Quantum Conversation, brought to you by AcousticHealth.com. I'm Loren Gailey, and I invite you to sit back as we enter the Quantum Realm, that space of the greater part of you. It is your connection to infinite possibilities, infinite potential, and infinite mastery. Mastery of meditation is the focus of this episode. Meditation is really penetrating beyond the mind to the true essence of self, our true beingness. My guest today is a master meditator. She has lived in an ashram and a Zen Buddhist monetary, and she teaches meditation at renowned institutions, the Chopra Center, Esalen, and many others. So welcome, Meditation Master, Sarah McLean, to Quantum Conversations. Thank you, Sarah, for being here. Thank you for having me, Loren. It's such a pleasure to be here and to be speaking with your listeners. Yes, I am so excited to have you here. I had the privilege and the honor to be in your class at Esalen, and it was a beautiful experience, and I'm so glad you can join us today. The topic of meditation, when we talk about living in the fifth dimension and raising our vibration and expanding our consciousness, meditation really is the foundation of all of this. And what I love about you is your actual experience journey with it. You were a student of Deepak Chopra and you've lived in an ashram and the Zen Buddhist Monastery. How did that advance your meditation into what you're doing today? Well, I believe that each one of us is really born with this quest, um, whether we realize it in this lifetime or not. And my quest was to unravel the mysteries of life, like who is looking through my eyes? Who am I outside of all of these cultural conventions and the cultural norms and the sort of the hypnosis of social conditioning. And, you know, yes, I did work with Deepak Chopra and he was certainly a teacher of mine, but I don't know if you knew this, I was living and working in a transcendental meditation community and he was the medical director at the time there. And I got really involved with Ayurveda, which is the science of life and longevity. It's an ancient 5,000-year-old science. 
um, born out of India, which really looks at the body as as more than just uh, a physical machine, but really looks at the mind, body, and spirit connection and and a new sort of paradigm in health, which is much more than the absence of disease. So I got really involved in Ayurveda, uh, which means the science of life and longevity, and the approaches to Ayurveda, which were to really take a look at how you're digesting your life, the world, your your experiences, your food, um, your emotions. And they said in Ayurveda that perfect health is through perfect digestion. And they weren't just talking about food. And today you'd probably use the word mindful, how to be mindful in your life, to completely absorb and experience um, your life fully, taking the nourishment and uh, eliminating toxicity. But as I was in this Ayurveda Health Center, it's a, run by the Transcendental Meditation Organization, I really was immersed in meditation as well. So in Ayurveda, they talk about bringing health back to the to us, each one of us, vibrant, you know, um, ecstatic health by fully digesting what we eat, what we smell, what we see. And so there's aromatherapy, taste therapy, color therapy, sound therapy, massage therapy, herbs, aligning your rhythms with the rhythms of nature, dietary um, practices that you do, more like mindfulness eating, elimination therapy, acupressure, and meditation and yoga and pranayama. And so I was really immersed in this yogic lifestyle uh, for a couple of years. And then Deepak decided to go out to California to open up the what the, what was called the uh, Sharp Center for Mind-Body Health. He was courted by um, a, a big HMO organization out there. And he went out there to open up this little Mind-Body Health Center. It was still kind of a new paradigm. And I went out there with him and we started to see people who were looking for alternatives to cancer treatments or, or adjuncts to, you know, uh, arth chronic arthritis or autoimmune disorders. And so that was the beginning of, I think, sort of the, how do I say it, sort of the blossoming of mind, body, health and its popularization. And that was in the early 90s. And what was interesting, well, at least for me, was here I was working at this mind-body health center in California, working for one of the most preeminent doctors of mind-body health who happened to be an endocrinologist, and I was diagnosed with an um, thyroid cancer, and the thyroid is the endocrine center, uh, one of them. So it was such an, uh, an honor and a challenge and a journey for me to wake up to what does this mean energetically? So I can go on and on about, you know, spending eight years. Well, let me tell you the story about the cancer and what I did. So I was, I was lucky to be able to walk into Deepak Chopra's office. At the time, the waiting list to see him was like over a year long. And I was lucky to be able to go in and tell him. And I said, you know, I've just been diagnosed with this cancer. And even though I didn't feel scared by that C word and I didn't feel um, different I just knew I had to handle it in some way. And I said, can you give me a mantra? Because I really fully believed in consciousness being primary and trying to create a vibrational um, antidote for this, this, these cancer cells that had gone awry. Because cancer really is when cells lose track of what they're supposed to do. They, they become immortal, unfortunately, um, because they're 
they don't have the the die off that most cells do and then they just keep procreating and causing big problems so i said can you give me um, a mantra and he said sarah you need more than a mantra you need surgery and this was a surprise to me because here i was in this world of mind body health and you know he said you your body is so dense and it's it's though changes can happen in consciousness and yes there are spontaneous healings the body is kind of slow to respond to a change of awareness or a change of mind and who knows how long this accumulation of toxicity had been forming in my so-called throat chakra and you know he goes you need surgery because by the time maybe your awareness catches up and and you can change the way you behave and the way you think and whatever this karma is, you're going to need surgery in the meantime. So this doesn't kill you. So he gave me my mantra, which was specific to that chakra. And um, then I went and had surgery and I healed, um, you know, with the Ayurveda support, I was able to heal right away. So after eight years of working with him and, and working as the program director in California, I decided it was time to go back to the world of, where Ayurveda and meditation was born. So I went to India and I lived in a traditional ashram uh, with a woman some of you have heard of. Her name is Mata Amritananda Mai, but better known as the Hugging Saint. And her ashram is in Kerala and it's very popular now. But at the time, you know, we had, I slept over the, the um, meeting hall and on the floor and it was really hot. But I lived and worked in that ashram for six months in India. And it was a day that was full of rhythm, but different kinds of rhythm than we Westerners are used to. Getting up with the sun and chanting the thousand names of Mother Divine and being very mindful as you work and chopping vegetables or fruit and chanting alongside that and sitting in devotion, chanting with the, with her, meditating it was just a beautiful experience for me. And when I got back to the States, you know, I was kind of lost, I have to say. I thought, do I go back to my life pre-Deepak Chopra and TM? Do I go back into real estate? What do I do? Uh, where do I need to go? And it was a junction point that um, many of us have in our lives where we say, what's next? What's next? And it came to me that I needed to go and live in a community again. And so I moved into a Zen Buddhist monastery in the middle of the national forest um, and became a resident there for two years. So I really exposed myself to all of these uh, paths, I'd have to say, the TM, you know, the westernized meditation path, the Zen Buddhist tradition that's from out of Japan, and then the, the Hindu Vedanta path. And um, there's more to that story, but I'm going to stop and and uh, see how you feel if that was what you wanted to know. Well, thank you for sharing that story again. It's such a personal healing journey. And the fact that you were not scared along the way, but that led you on your path, on your purpose for what you're doing today. Obviously, things went well with that. What did you learn energetically? You had the surgery then, but did you, in hindsight, were you able to identify the energetic vibration of that experience? Well, let me tell you, I can tell you a few lessons I learned from, 
from having cancer. And then I'll tell you a few other lessons in general that have led me now to becoming a meditation teacher. Um, but in general with the cancer, it was right when I actually learned to teach meditation and we would open every meditation. Um, when I was teaching, I would open it with a chant called the Shanti mantra. Um, and I might sing it for you later. We'll see what happens. But what I learned about this, the cancer that was in my body was that, you know, basically there were about three different types of approaches that people talked about energetically. It really wasn't a conversation like is so prevalent today. I got Hay House, um, Louise Hay's book on, you know, finding out what's wrong with the body or the body speaks. I can't even remember the name of it, but I looked up what the throat chakra is. And of course, of course the throat mm -hmm. is the junction point between the heart and the head, but it really is the chakra of manifestation and of expression of your own truth manifesting your own creativity and really sharing who you are and what you want and speaking the truth. And I never had done that based on my personal family history. I grew up with an alcoholic and my mother and my father had Asperger's and was very violent. And, um, I basically just, just kept the peace, whatever that looked like. It was a great technique, but it didn't serve me as an adult. And, um, so what I learned and I always had strep throats, terrible coughs. I never get those now. I never get them. But at that time, when I was young, that was where my, I call these areas, everybody has one. I call it your strong spot. Where is it that you, what is it that talks to you and tells you that you need to pay attention? You know, whether it's your stomach and your digestion or your low back or your shoulders or your knees. I call that your strong spot, the part of you that takes on uh, whatever lesson needs to be learned. And so it's funny because after I got the surgery and started to speak my truth and chant a lot, I started to, obviously I went to India and started chanting. We chanted a lot at the Zen monastery too and chanted a lot when I was teaching. But it was really about saying the hard stuff saying yes when I meant yes and no when I meant no. It really meant facing who I really was and finding out what was true for me. And I was only in my early 30s. So, you know, I don't know how everybody else goes through life. But for me, that was a real challenge because I wanted to be a people pleaser. I wanted to be a peaceful meditator. And yet I recognized that I couldn't pretend to feel one way or another that it was actually detrimental to my health. Because if my body says one thing and your body doesn't lie, right? And the body says yes or no to a certain opportunity, um, you know, and I might override my intelligence, my body's intelligence or my own inner knowing, there's a disconnection there. There's a disintegration there. And I wanted to create more wholeness, not disintegration. So I had to really practice and it was, began with the small stuff. Do you want to hang out with me? Do you want to go out to eat? What would you like to do today? When people would pose a question to me, I really had to check in. I mean, I'd even went as far as, um, gosh, it was in 2001, which had been um, another nine years after I'd gotten cancer. My husband asked me to marry him. And this was a long journey on it in and of itself. But he said, well, will you marry me? This was after a long puja, which is a devotional ceremony that typically a disciple does to a god or goddess or guru. And so after all these bows and chanting and waving of uh, candles and incense, he asked if I would marry him. And before I answered him, I had to ask myself, 
Is this a yum or a yuck? Is this a yes or a no? And I knew at this point, after many years of this, I could trust my body to tell me yes or no. And after a moment, and he was scared. He didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I said, sure, I'll marry you. And we're still married and happy here, living in Sedona for many, many years together. So that was the first thing is really honoring my own inner knowing and recognizing that surgery and cancer is not my fault. That was the other aspect uh, that was going around at that time was if you have this disease, it's your fault. And that's really not helpful because the guilt associated with that is, is really not helpful in terms of healing. Now, it is my responsibility when faced with a particular diagnosis, but it's not necessarily my fault, though I can look back and find the ways in which I contributed to that blockage and that accumulation of stress in that in my throat. Whether it's my fault or not, I'm I'm pretty sure it's not. It's just my karma. And the third lesson I learned, besides speaking my truth and recognizing that it's my responsibility to deal with it, not necessarily my fault, is that the other type of approach to healing cancer at the time, there were two sort of conversations around it. One was by Dr. Carl Simonton, I think his name was, and he used to um, have people go through these visualizations, imagining their cancer cells as bad guys and imagining your immune system as good guys. And so um, I would spend time every night before going to bed doing this visualization, imagining my cancer cells as, as the enemy. And I would do this every night and I remember feeling I'm a peacenik, you know, I remember feeling I don't want war in my body. I don't want war in my throat. So what I decided and what I learned from Ayurveda was that cancer cells have lost their way. They have lost their what they're what they call in Ayurveda Dharma, which means duty. They've lost their duty. They've lost their way. They've forgotten their wholeness. And I also knew that love heals. Love heals. So I decided that I was going to love myself and love my cancer and love this dis-ease. And the minute I made that decision one evening, I remember feeling like this warm, unctuous, nourishing feeling running throughout my body from my head to my toes like, yes, this is what the body needs. It doesn't need me to go it's my fault and my cancer sucks and I've got to get rid of it and it's a fight. It needs me to say, you know, I love my body. I love the messages that my body gives me. I'm loving myself back to wholeness. And I also know that your attention is so powerful that it can help you heal through anything. So those were my lessons. What a journey beautiful that you learn that and you can share that information with others and i love how you bring forth the mindfulness of it as well and the love you are the author of two books with hay house soul centered and the power of attention and really with your meditation center you teach people how to meditate and be soul centered and I know from the audience, as meditation is the foundation for many in their daily practice, yet there are others who don't understand what it means to be soul-centered, to live from the heart, and even others have trouble meditating. 
So before we go into a meditation with you, can you speak to both of these issues, being in the heart, what does that mean, being soul-centered, and tips for people who have trouble meditating? I wanted to read you something from my book, because soul-centered for me was a, a journey. I was really, really codependent, which is why I didn't speak my truth, which is just a, the way I was brought up as a family sort of a family value uh, is be sure that everybody's happy and then um, there can be a little peace in this world or this home. And so for me, I had to unlearn that codependence. I had to learn to create a new center point of peace, which was not outsourced to a family member or a situation. And so I want to share, um, I want to share a little bit about what this soul centered is. So I came up with the term soul centered to describe a particular shift in perspective, a transformation of the vantage point for your life. So when you're soul-centered, you're not dependent on others for your sense of self or worthiness. Instead, you are guided by an inner reference point, your own soul. You are open to all possibilities and approach life courageously and fearlessly without resistance or clinging, offensiveness or defensiveness. You can focus your attention where and when you want to, easily and without distraction. You have a receptive awareness and your natural state is relaxed, calm, peaceful, and loving toward yourself and others. When you are soul-centered, your attention is in the present moment. You receive the moment and you welcome it. You accept things as they are and you don't struggle against what is happening now or at any time. You realize that you are safe and loved no matter what. You become aware of the spacious quality in the present moment in which you can listen to your inner wisdom, make nourishing choices, feel your feelings fully, and take time to choose a response rather than react automatically. When you're soul-centered, you have a deep inner wisdom and you make decisions easily and you begin, you gain confidence as you journey on your own path. What you think feel, say, and do are integrated and in alignment with your deepest truth. You know when to say yes and when to say no. And in this way, you address each moment with integrity. When you're soul-centered, you're stable and flexible no matter what occurs in life. And if you're thrown off balance for some reason, you quickly re realize it and are easily able to regain your center point of peace. So there's so much more about how to be soul-centered, but basically, regardless of how people see you, what their opinions are of you, whether your, uh, what your numbers and letters are, whether you've passed or failed, whether you're married or divorced, whether you, you know, whatever the letters are, whatever the numbers are, whatever those uh, levels that we're trying to achieve are, we can still see our, ourselves with loving eyes. We can still be the one we're waiting for. And so soul-centered is a journey to shake off that hypnosis of um, really being dependent on the world outside of ourselves. So one way I know to be soul-centered, you know, is to really examine uh, how I live and how I am, what my dependence is, how I deal with stress, how present I am, how mindful I am, how whether or not I love myself, whether or not I'm in integrity with what I speak. And also it's a journey to the center of your own awareness. 
to that center inside you. And that's a tricky journey because if you look at it just on the biological basis, your senses are always focused externally, at least much of the time. You're looking at the world, you're navigating the world through smell and taste and touch and sound. And basically, you're, you're, external, you're externally focused. And with meditation, this allows you to start moving into the interior where some of the most important aspects of you are found, well, the most important aspects of you are found, and to really meet your own mind and to undo the way you see the world, you have to know how you see it. To make any changes in habits, you have to know the habits. To make any change in perspective, you have to know what your perspective is already. So that's where meditation comes in. And yes, meditation is uh, much more popular now than when I went to the the TM center and lived in an ashram, but, and I'm happy for that. But I think along with its popularity, there are, uh, how do I say it? There's a lot of misconceptions that are riding right along with the popularity, you know, like I'm supposed to be able to meditate without any instruction. I'm supposed to stop thinking by automatically shutting my eyes and saying I'm meditating. I'm supposed to have these mystical experiences in my meditation each and every time I'm supposed to, be comfortable in my meditation, and I'm supposed to stop thinking about negative things. And as a meditator, I'm supposed to never get sick, and I'm supposed to be nice to everybody. And with all of these misconceptions, they actually cause more stress and hindrances on the path to a daily meditation practice than most people realize. Mm-hmm. The expectations. Okay, so we need to remove all of that. I love how you describe all of that. When we look around at our external world these days, it can seem quite hectic. So now more than ever, this turning inward, moving deep within ourselves, understanding our intuition, having integrity with everything that we do, that is a powerful way for us to live and move forward, especially as we're here creating the new, as we see a lot of stuff shifting. So would you say that with the seemingly chaos outside of us, that meditation is a daily practice that must be Well, see, here I am conditioning it again, but it really is helpful. It's very helpful if we can get rid of those expectations and just center ourselves. We will be even more connected and we will see great change from that. That's why you have a meditation center where you teach people to teach people. Exactly. Well, we have a meditation teacher academy and it is a challenge to meet your own mind and to get on the right path without, let's say, some really good teachers. Um, There are a lot of people who call themselves teachers, but have never really practiced. As a matter of fact, I just got an email from a friend of mine, actually a teacher who is now a friend of mine, who was teaching meditation and here in, in Arizona, and she was approached by a guy who was in a master's or doctorate program. And he said to her, you know, I've got this hospital that they're, they're going to make meditation mandatory for their, it's a private program, but they're going to make meditation mandatory for the people that are here. And he goes, and I'm the one who's heading up the program, but I don't know the first thing about meditation and mindfulness. I don't do it. I don't practice it. And I think this is the biggest challenge. And this is, again, going back to the conversation about integrity. 
you know, a yes, we teach what we need to learn, but we also need to practice what we teach. We have to be the change we want to see in the world. We can't legislate change. And as we all know, that doesn't work anyway. We can't legislate peace. We can't legislate love. We can't legislate awakening. And that's what this guy was doing. And, and you'll, you know, for your listeners, if you are looking for a meditation teacher, make sure that they walk their talk, not just talk a walk, you know, and so how do you do it? Well, with every meditation, regardless if it's TM, you know, transcendental meditation or a mantra practice or a chakra practice or a subtle body exercise or um, self-inquiry or loving kindness or gratitude meditation, what's required of any meditation are three things. The first is your willingness to sit down and do it and your commitment to doing it for that particular period of practice. So you predetermine that you're going to meditate for 20 minutes and you don't stop after eight minutes saying, you know, I really need to get a snack or I really should check my email or nothing's happening. So you have to have that commitment. It's called in Sanskrit, a sankalpa, this commitment, this intention, this willingness to sit through it. The second ingredient for any meditation is you and your gentle attention. So just like that attention I was talking about that I used on my body, it's this open, loving attention. You know, everybody's always talks about the power of intention, but the delivery system for intention is attention. So the attention you use in meditation is an open, welcoming, non-resistant, non-expectant attention, maybe just like what you're listening to me with right now. And then the third ingredient, and this is, this is an important part, this is where all the meditations vary in, in type and focus, is the focus for your attention. What are you going to focus on in your meditation? Are you going to focus on something you see, like a, like a candle flame or a, an imagined light inside you? Are you going to focus on a symbol or maybe a star in the sky? What are you going to focus on? Is it visual or is it auditory? Are you going to listen to a sound like the sounds of the waves rolling in on the ocean shore? Are you going to listen to your own breath? Are you going to listen to a mantra that someone else is chanting? Or are you going to chant a mantra? Are you going to, to make some sounds that you focus on? Or are you going to do something subtle in your own mind? Are you going to say an affirmation again and again or count your breaths or say a mantra silently to yourself? The other way you could focus on something is by um, sensation, by the focus of, of touch or emotion. So you could focus on gratitude, cultivating that, cultivating loving kindness, cultivating courage. Or you could focus on a movement, um, feeling yourself moving through time as you're walking back and forth, or even the movement of your own breath. So you can focus on something you either see or hear or feel. And you can focus on a number of those at the same time as well. I mean, that's sometimes what people do with the japa practice or what might the Christians might know as rosaries. You know, they move the beads with their fingers and they say um, a mantra with it. A repetition is a jap japa practice. So they say a mantra or a prayer with it. So you can do two senses at once. You can walk and chant. You can breathe and say a mantra. So every meditation, no matter what kind of fancy name there is for it, can be broken down into this. 
And it's really important to know that because I think the mystery of meditation creates, makes it sort of out of reach for many people. And so this is why I say that. Now, I want to address some of the expectations and some of the misconceptions, and then we'll go into a meditation. But uh, what I wish someone had told me was that it's okay to have thoughts in meditation. I was sitting in the monastery, sitting perfectly still in Zazen, which is the Zen Buddhist practice of paying attention to the breath and counting the breaths. In Zazen, or Shikantaza, we are not supposed to move. The, the emphasis is really on the posture. It's uh, really on stillness and and paying attention to the breath and counting the breaths from one to ten. Now, it sounds simple, but it's certainly not easy because, of course, I don't know if you know this, but I was the cook there. So I would think about recipes and shopping lists and what people like to eat, and whether or not the last meal was good and how many leftovers I had and if the bread had risen. And I was supposed to sit there and count my breaths. From one to ten. Now the instruction is that if you don't get to ten, you and you stop because you have a thought, you start again at one. And I rarely got to ten, but I quite often got to twenty because I'd be so spaced out that I was automatically counting <laughs> and would wake up at you know or become aware of number twenty or twenty-five or something. So thoughts are okay in meditation. It's the nature of your mind to think. And quite often, thoughts in meditation are simply an indication that your mind is settling down, the body is settling down, you're releasing some sort of stress, whether it's mental, physical, or emotional. And as you release stress, there's movement, and it causes movement in the mind. So you can have a lot of colors in meditations, a lot of insights, a lot of thoughts, a lot of random mundane thoughts specifically. And quite often, when people stop meditating, or after an end of a meditation session, they won't remember what they were thinking because it's so mundane and not very interesting. The aha moments that I experience more than often, and I asked this question last night at my meditation center while I was leading meditation, you know, most people say they have an aha moment maybe once out of every 10 or um, 10% of their meditations. But the majority of the people have aha moments after meditating because their eyes are bright, their awareness is clear, their, their self-hypnosis has come to a sort of a, an end, and they, then they wake up to you know an aha moment. So the first essential that I always say is it's okay to have thoughts. Your job is to notice when you're off track and to come back to the practice. Start back at number one. You can begin again, whatever your practice is. Number two, this is really important for all meditators be kind to yourself. Do not beat yourself up there with your eyes closed. It's a really bad habit that many of us have to beat ourselves up. And it's not helpful. It doesn't help you become a better meditator. So remember to be kind to yourself. Meditation is a training. It's all about training your attention. And it's also about creating new neural pathways. And self-compassion is one of the ways in which your brain changes with meditation. You become much more naturally self-compassionate, but catch yourself when you're saying, oh, I'm not good at this, everybody else is better at this, I'm such a loser, I can't stop thinking. Knock that off, it's not helpful, go back to your practice instead. The third essential that I always say is to begin every meditation with a beginner's mind. Even for those of you who have been meditating a really long time, see if you can meditate without expectation. 
See if you can meditate with this open, innocent awareness, letting what happens happen instead of you can trying to control it. It's the ego that wants to get in there and make something happen that you can then be proud of. So forget about it and let the natural unfoldment of your evolution happen. You know, quite often they have these lotuses that are representative of uh, chakras as well as, you know, you'll see it in yoga centers and meditation centers. But a lotus is all about this ever, it's never ending unfoldment. And that's meditation. And you can't pull the petals of the lotus apart and expect it to be beautiful. It's like you can't open a rosebud and expect a beautiful rose. So let's let the unfoldment begin and continue naturally without trying to direct it in any way. And the fourth essential that is important is not to try too hard to have a certain experience. When you try, as Yoda would say from Star Wars, do or do not, there is no try. When you try, you're monitoring your experience, you're looking for a certain thing to happen, and you're actually inhibiting the natural settling down of the nervous system. So if you can, see if you can meditate without any expectation whatsoever. Have you ever heard of these essentials, Loren? Yes, they do come up because thoughts do come up. And so as you were explaining these essentials, what do you have to say then about inspiration mm-hmm. that comes from, and you did speak to it, these aha moments, the aha moments come because we have opened ourselves to the stillness. It's almost as if we are connecting with the universal mind. Well, you are an expression of that. So there's nothing that keeps you separate from that except for the conditioned mind of yours and mine and the personal Mm -hmm. conditioning. So, yes, I do love that self-inquiry practice. And, you know, when I um, was sitting with Deepak Chopra probably about a year ago, he talked about attention and, and awareness. And he talked about expanded awareness and he talked about contracted awareness. And I think what a lot of people get stuck on is they talk about higher and lower For me, it's more like expanded or contracted. I have a contracted awareness when I'm jealous or stressed or, you know, I feel offended in some way and have my old systems happening. I feel expanded when it's me being completely present to this moment and getting rid of the stress that has accumulated in my nervous system. Back to Ayurveda again, you know, stress accumulates and it masks and shrouds your awareness of your own wonder and beauty. And that also keeps you from seeing clearly, like you're wearing dirty eyeglasses, you know? So meditation helps to clean those glasses off, to unveil your beauty from your own perspective. And so that is a beautiful time to ask a question. And as one of my great teachers, Byron Katie, once said, and I ended up working for her after I came out of the monastery, um, being her director of her programs, She used to say, you know, ask the question, the answer will always meet it. And how does the answer meet the question? It meets it when you're paying attention, when you're really clear, when you're present and and receptive. Now, you asked about inspiration and, you know, the best things in life, whether it's feeling connected to God or spirit, whether it's feeling expanded and present or really connected to another person, whether it's feeling inspired and creative or in love. 
whether it's feeling in awe of a beautiful sunset or gazing into a child's eyes, all of the most beautiful moments in life happen when you are not distracted, when you are not checked out, when you are not running some internal you know, monologue. It happens when you're expanded and present. And meditation teaches us uh, to become more present, to become much more self-aware of the interior, and to focus on one thing at a time so we're less distracted. You know, I think many of us are living in a way that life is an emergency. And it's not. It's absolutely not, unless it is. Of course, there are fires and there are, there are problems, and, and we do have to occasionally activate that fight-or-flight response. But life in general is not an emergency. 50 emails is not an emergency. Running five minutes late is not an emergency. The phone ringing is not an emergency. But when we're in that emergency mode, that beautiful world, the, our beautiful lives are, are hidden from plain sight. Yes, I heard that loud and clear myself once. Life is not a race. It's not an emergency. Well, you have explained how helpful meditation is and actually why it is so important, especially now, because it really is the gateway to ourselves and our own inner dimensions. So now would be a beautiful time to give us a guided meditation that we could use every day if we needed to, to really go in and be centered in the okay, heart. Okay, let's do a 10-minute meditation. And every meditation begins with mindfulness, another buzzword these days. And mindfulness means being completely present to where you are and what you're doing with a non-judgmental attitude. And so I will guide us into a meditation. What I'll ask each of the listeners to do, if you're driving, probably a good time to stop listening. Uh, if you're not driving, Find yourself in a comfortable position. Find yourself comfortable, feeling supported. Um, get off your phone. If you're listening to us on the phone, don't get off your phone, but don't answer the phone or check emails. Let's, let's try to be one-pointed here with the attention. And I'll guide us through. I'm looking for my meditation bell, but we'll just have to, to do it without. Um, so find a comfortable spot, and I'll guide you into about a 10-minute meditation, which will start with mindfulness, and we'll move into a heart-centered breath, and then we'll begin the self-inquiry practice. So mindfulness begins by paying attention. So right now, begin to pay attention to what you hear in your environment Welcome everything you hear, whether the sounds are pleasant or unpleasant, whether they're far or near. Notice how sounds arise from the silence and return to the silence, just like my voice. Don't worry if your mind wanders. Just tap into the voice again and any instructions I give you, and you can always begin again in this meditation. As you might know, meditation is a practice for paying attention. So now, begin to scan your body. Become aware of various sensations. 
can tune into any sensations of warmth or coolness, sensations of lightness or heaviness, sensations of stillness or motion. I'll guide you into a body awareness practice and see if you can follow along with an attitude of appreciation. Not only appreciating your body, but appreciating your ability to pay attention and connect in this way. So start by paying attention to your scalp and your brow. Notice the sensations and appreciate whatever you notice. Softening your eyes. Your cheeks. Your ears. Your nose. your lips, your teeth and your tongue, your chin and your jaw, See yourself with loving eyes. You can tuck your chin just a little and allow the back of your neck to lengthen as you appreciate your spine and the way it holds your head up. Noticing the sensations. Loving your throat and whatever sensations are present. Letting your shoulders relax. And as you consider that your gentle attention is love, love your left arm from your shoulder and your armpit, all the way down to your elbow, your forearm, your wrist, top of your hand, your fingers, and your palm. Notice where your arm meets your lap, a junction point where you're resting and being supported by your own body. And bringing your gentle, kind attention to your right arm, become aware of the sensations as you relax from your shoulder all the way down 
to your fingers and palm. Become aware, maybe you'll feel the clothing on your skin or the air as it meets your skin. Become aware of every little sensation on your right arm. Welcoming everything, resisting nothing. And now bring your attention to your back. Are you being supported by a chair or a cushion? Feel your back, scan it with your loving kindness from the top of your shoulders all the way down to where you're sitting, appreciating the strength of your back, appreciating the strength of your spine, and welcoming every sensation that meets your awareness. Now bringing your attention to your front body. Notice your rib cage, how it moves with your breath. Can you soften your diaphragm and your belly? And appreciate the sensations that are there remembering that your gentle attention is love. Bringing your attention to your pelvis and appreciating your sex organs and your hips and feeling that pressure as you find the support that you need right here, right now. Bringing your attention now to your legs and with a loving attitude, become aware of the sensations. Maybe your thighs are meeting the chair. Maybe you can feel the air on your skin, on your feet, if you're barefoot, or the way your feet meet the floor or your shoes. Feel your legs and love them Imagining your attention is like a beam of a flashlight of love. Now allow your awareness to expand and consider your whole body. Where do you begin and end?
Notice the stillness that is present right here. Notice any movement. Can you sense your pulse, your heartbeat? Tune in now to the movement of your breath. Become aware of the gentle rise and fall of your chest as you breathe naturally through your nose. You can imagine, if you like, that the breath is moving in and out of the doorway of your heart, right out in front of you. Can you see or feel or imagine the center point of view? The light of your own awareness or your heart center? Continue to breathe into that space, in and out from that area. And I'll guide you now into a short self-inquiry practice. We'll ask three questions. Don't worry about making up an answer, though occasionally one will meet your awareness with a thought, an idea, a color, a sensation. The first question you can silently ask yourself with your attention on the center point of view is, who am I? Who is this one sitting here? Ask yourself a few times. And you can let that question go. Don't worry if any answers met it. They eventually will. The next question you can silently ask yourself is what do I long for? What is my heart's desire? Ask yourself a few times.
and letting that question go, we'll ask ourselves the final question for this practice. How can I best love myself? How can I best love myself? And you can let go of that question and any answers that might have met it. Return now to the movement of your breath. Deepening your breath now. Becoming aware of the sounds outside of you once again. As you deepen your breath and stretch into the space around you, but keeping your eyes closed for another moment. It's always important to come out of meditation slowly, no matter how deep you went or didn't go. Moving from the state of meditation to being awake is very important as this is how we create that integrity and that change of awareness. So when you're ready to open your eyes, you can softly gaze to the floor. And when you're ready to engage with the world around you, you can open your eyes all the way, but there's no rush. Stay in your integrity. How are you doing in there, Loren? Thank you, Sarah. It is so gentle and comforting and peaceful. I know this is the part where many wish we could just linger. And this <laughs> is truly how we tap into that inner knowingness. This truly is the greatest gift that we could give to ourselves each day this very precious time. I still feel like closing my eyes here because to <laughs> me it seems so important that if we could bridge this interconnectedness into the external world, if we can keep it centered in that way, that's very powerful and that is the task at hand. Absolutely. Absolutely. What happens is I think that's one of the big mistakes people make is coming out more slowly. But the real trick with meditation is to stay in that space of having the interior focus meet the exterior focus. So you're not blowing yourself off or 
overriding it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. That overriding is what many of us do all the time to our own intuition and this attention. Thank you for leading us into such a beautiful centered space. I hope our listeners are really enjoying this. I know they are. Oftentimes we are taken into guided meditations that take us across the universe, but this was something that is for us personally and individually, again, tapping us into our passion and our hearts so that we can express that within us authentically in our world. Well, this is a beautiful experience, and I want to mention quickly as we wrap up our phone call, you have teachings, guided meditations, and a way for people to deepen their practice, and this is in your special offer. We invite our listeners to check this out and look at that and read along, but can you share on this and how we can really use this to our best abilities? Well, the programs that I'm offering, we even I have to recall what they are, but they there are private calls with me. So that's the first one. Um, but I know I've offered this Living a Soul-Centered Life, um, which is a program I recorded that goes through the eight-week program that I personally have used and has was my personal journey that I con- condensed into an eight-week meditation series. Series. So we go through everything we talk about in the, in the book Soul Centered and lots of meditation. So from understanding how to love yourself or connect to your soul or communicate honestly or the power of your own attention And it also introduces you to some of the real basics of Ayurveda, which at the very end, which I find to be so essential to maintaining this shift in consciousness to this expansion. So item one, living that soul centered life course, eight weeks interviews with the luminaries of Sedona. That's number two. That's a great one. And then guided meditations, item three, and then meditation mentoring, three live coaching calls. That's right. Fall. That's a beautiful package. Yeah. You know, the truth is I like to teach meditation. I can give it away and I just want to connect with people and help them navigate some of the challenges that I know exist that I actually went through that I wish someone had helped me with. So, you know, I find that that personal touch of being on the calls with people is essential. Now, not everybody takes advantage of it because, you know, meditation is not for sissies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that is a beautiful program and those are recorded beautifully, your CDs as well. Oh, yeah, it's very popular. So thank you for that, Sarah. A beautiful experience today. And again, anytime anyone has a chance to be in Sedona or to catch up with Sarah at any of her workshops across the nation, it is an experience that will leave you feeling so elated and centered within yourself. Very powerful with Sarah McLean. We thank you so much, Sarah, for your journey, for standing in your truth, for listening to the call of your heart, and assisting so many in this most crucial practice of mindfulness and this connection of mind, body, and spirit. Hmm. Well, 
I, you know, through meditation and studying meditation, helping people with their meditations, I've really come to recognize the importance of paying attention. Obviously, it's one of the ingredients for meditation, but it is the most important ingredient for living a mindful life. And, you know, we might take our attention very, very, oh, we don't maybe honor it enough. We might just take it for granted. And with all the distractions out there, really make it a point to start paying attention to what you're giving your attention to. It's a limited currency. It has innate power. It can change your life and it can change the world. So start becoming the master of your attention so that you can get on the peace team with me and we can start really paying attention to what matters. Beautiful. Become the master of your attention. And that is through the mastery of meditation. And we're going to be on the peace train with you. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Sarah McLean of the McLean Meditation Institute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this quantum and mindful conversation. Thank you, Loren. Come see me in Sedona. I will. I look forward to that. Beautiful. Thank you. And now it's time to dance our way to the cosmic heart. Enjoy.
for listening and thank you for dancing with us in our collective intentions as they go across the universe to the cosmic heart. I'd like to thank my wonderful team at AcousticHealth.com, Heidi, Tony, Tom, Pam, Suzanne, and Garner, who assist with the production of Quantum Conversations, online healing retreats, and more. And thank you, too, for listening. If you've enjoyed this program, please share it with your friends and loved ones. And we thank you for shining your magnificent light and adding it to the world. This is when we love ourselves like no one else can. We leave you now with music from the universe. Music literally created by the universe as musical notes were assigned to mathematical equations. The result is this beautiful music available at AcousticHealth.com. Namaste.
Quantum Conversations, your portal to the inner realms. Access infinite possibilities, infinite mastery, and infinite love. Mind-expanding, heart-opening conversations with some of the greatest spiritual teachers, luminaries, and healers of today's world. Usher in new earth by living in your sacred heart. Quantum Conversations is brought to you by AcousticHealth.com, home of music from the universe, online healing retreats, and this program. Claim your free registration to daily shows at AcousticHealth.com. AcousticHealth.com, your portal to the inner realms.